Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. So fear is a real thing. And many of us have felt fear, and this year has brought a lot of fears to the surface, not just the coronavirus stuff, but what's happening socially in the streets, that's bringing up fear, right? Fear is a real thing. Um, now, it's interesting how we get to that point. Um, I have a family member who's not afraid of anything. He is not afraid of the virus. He's not afraid of violence in the streets. And that's Josiah. He's 18 months old. <laughs> He doesn't give a rip about any of this. Uh, well, uh, and my other two kids have some awareness, but they're really not afraid either because we, well, we all know, like, as a kid, you have less fear. Josiah has no fear. He's 18 months old. He'll climb up a flight of stairs. You know, we, we had a situation last week where the baby gate got, was left open and Emma says, Josiah went upstairs and Kendra bolts. I've never seen Kendra run until she heard Josiah was at the top of the stairs. I don't know if he was ready to hang glide off or what he was going to do. Um, Josiah has no fear of petting strange dogs or other animals. Uh, he just has no intimidation. He has no fear of grabbing something that was under the refrigerator and putting it in his mouth. I mean, just no fear in this kid. Now, I guess I shouldn't say no fear you know, he, loud people scare him, loud noises, you know, those types of things. But he's not afraid of the dark. He, he doesn't know to be afraid of the dark. And that, I think, illustrates this point that sometimes fear is something that we learn. We learn to be afraid. Now, that can help us and that can hurt us. It's good that you're afraid of a live electrical wire. It's good that you're afraid of a bear or a shark. Those are good things. But it's not good that you're afraid of other things. You don't want to be paralyzed by fear. If you're afraid of everything all the time, it's really going to impact the way you live your life. You're not going to live a victorious Christian life if you're always paralyzed by fear. Uh, there's this concept that goes way, way back in uh, kind of our DNA as human beings that when we are threatened, we have this survival instinct of fight or flight. Have you heard about this? You've probably heard this in high school or something. Fight or flight. If something threatens you, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to fight or you're going to run. Fight or flight. And probably most of us have adopted one of those two responses throughout our lives, that when something threatens us, we puff out our chest, our blood pressure goes up, and we're, we get in its face, whether it's a person or a thing, and we fight. Others of us run. And that's how we've survived. Now, there is a third option. There's fight, there's flight, and then there's freeze. You get so afraid, you're just paralyzed. You don't make a decision. You don't move. You just freeze is not a survival technique. Fight, you can survive by fighting. You can survive by running. If you freeze, you're lunch. You can't free, that, it's a technique, it's just not a survival technique. And when we freeze as a result of fear, we just, we don't make decisions, we get paralyzed. We, we would almost rather make no decision than the wrong decision. And fear was a real thing in the life of Timothy. Uh, Timothy struggled with fear. 
Paul instructs Timothy in this passage that I'm going to read in a moment. His, the spirit God gave him is not a fearful spirit. Um, he told Timothy, and we looked at this passage a few months ago, Paul told Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you're young. Uh, Timothy had a big job and a big task ahead of him, and we learn a little bit about Timothy from the New Testament that, that fear might have been an issue. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 10 and 11, that are about Timothy, and I, I think they're hilarious uh, when I think about Timothy. Paul is sending Timothy to Corinth, to the First and Second Corinthians church. He's sending them there, but Paul sends them a letter in advance to tell them how to prepare for Timothy's arrival. And, uh, well, the whole letter isn't about Timothy's arrival, but there's a portion in 1 Corinthians where he says, get ready for Timothy. It'd be kind of like if I'm in a bad mood and I tell my wife, and I'm like, I'm in a bad mood, so when I get home, I just want to eat dinner and go to bed. She's going to tell the kids, dad's not in a good mood, so, you know, don't ask him for all his money. So when Timothy's about to arrive in Corinth, this is, what Paul, this is how Paul prepares the church in Corinth. He says, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am, so let no one despise him. So this is what Paul tells the church in Corinth. Hey guys, don't scare him. <laughs> He's easily scared. Please don't scare Timothy when he arrives because Timothy has an issue with being timid and maybe even being cowardly, kind of. And so he's saying, don't, don't do that. And also he says, see that no one despises him. It's kind of like, don't let people treat him poorly because he's really sensitive to that kind of stuff. He's timid, he's shy, he's fearful. So don't give him a reason to be afraid and don't let people treat him poorly. That's Timothy. Wonderful Timothy who has two books of the Bible named after him because they were written to him. Timothy was just a, a person like you and I who had issues, who had fears, who had concerns. And so Paul writes to Timothy in the second letter to Timothy. Second, this is 2 Timothy chapter 1 that we're going to be looking at today. Paul writes to Timothy at the beginning of this letter, and he starts to immediately confront this issue with cowardice or fear that Timothy has. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 12, or the passage we're going to look at today. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now he has been revealed by, what, by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until this day. So Paul decides he's going to start off Second Timothy confronting Timothy's issue with fear. Now, Paul says to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Don't those words sound simil similar? Timothy, timidity. Now, just that only is true in English, okay? In the original language, those words have nothing to do with each other. They just sound similar to us. There's nothing in the name Timothy that refers to being timid. It's just a coincidence. 
Uh, but this word tim- timidity, I want to explain what we mean by timidity today because I don't want to get it confused. This word timid is referring, really it means to be a coward. It's cowardice. It has to do with fear and it has to do with shame. It's I am embarrassed, so I'm fearful and I'm cowardly. That's what we're talking about. We are not talking about being quiet. We are not talking about being reserved. We are not talking about being an introvert. Those are not the same thing as what Paul's confronting here with cowardice and timidity. Uh, I know why people are quiet, and I know why people are reserved, because I'm a little bit this way. It's usually because they're thinking about something. They're processing something. And if they're like me, they process very slowly. And so they need 20 minutes to think about something. So if you're talking to a person like me, give them 20 minutes to get back to you, all right? They got to think about it. Introversion, being an introvert, meaning you're kind of internally focused, you, you're not great with strangers, you live in a world of ideas, you love rainy days where you can sit inside with a book and you look for every excuse to avoid parties. That is not what we're talking about. These are, those are personality types. We're dealing with being a coward, which is a sin. Did you know that you can be an outgoing coward? You can be an extroverted coward, you can be a loud coward, you can be a people-loving, party-going coward. You can be fearful with all that stuff. So we are not talking about personalities. We're talking about uh, the type of fear that prevents you from fulfilling the calling that God has on your life and keeps you from being faithful to Jesus. So this type of timidity, I want you to lump all these concepts together. Timid, cowardly, fearful, ashamed. That's what we're dealing with right now. We're not dealing with quietness, reserved demeanor. We're dealing with fear, cowardice, shame, and timidity. So verse 7 starts. Uh, Paul starts to go against, uh, against this, this timidity, and he kind of does two things here. Number one, he tells Timothy, you're, you're going to have to understand the Holy Spirit and rely on the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, you're going to have to develop intimacy with God. So those are the two things we're going to look at today, relying on the Holy Spirit, developing, developing intimacy with God. Verse 7 Paul says to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. What is the spirit that God has given to both Timothy and Paul? The Holy Spirit. We know that when we went through Ephesians a couple months ago, every Christian, this is in Ephesians 1, it's in Ephesians 4, it's in Romans, it's in other places, Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. You're not, you don't belong to Jesus if you don't have the Holy Spirit, it says in Romans. And so this Holy Spirit that's been given to Paul and Timothy and you and I is not a timid spirit. It is not a spirit of timidity. It is not a cowardly spirit or a fearful spirit. It is not a spirit that is ashamed. Timidity or cowardice do not come from God. But sometimes we try to pretend that they do. And we try to give it a different name that makes it sound more virtuous. Instead of saying, I'm afraid, we say, I'm just being responsible. Instead of saying that I'm fearful, I'm a coward, I'm ashamed, we say, I'm just being level, level-headed. I'm, I'm just you know, being uh, uh, thoughtful and concerned. We give it a name that makes it sound positive. But listen, cowardice, timidity, they're not virtuous, they're, they're actually sin. And you know, we're not gonna deal with them as long as we keep painting them all rosy. 
You know, as long as we keep acting like this is a good thing, this is a virtuous thing, this has helped me, this has kept me uh, safe all these years, this fearful spirit that I have. Until we call it sin, we're not going to get free of it. And that, that goes for every sin, whether it's a sexual sin or a financial sin or a, you know, a arrogance, pride sin. Like Until you call it a sin, you're not going to even think about getting free from it. So let's all agree with what Paul said to Timothy in verse 7. God didn't give us a fearful spirit. So let's stop pretending that our fear is from God and let's acknowledge it for what it is. It's something we learned. We either learned it through our pain, how we've been hurt, how we've been disappointed. We learned it through experiences that we've had. Just as I was saying about my son Josiah, fear is something we learn. Sometimes things happen to us that make us fearful. Sometimes people instill fear in us. They teach us to be fearful because they're afraid and they think, well, if I can get other people to be afraid, that justifies my fear. And so we get fearful, but listen, that did not come from God. It came from other people. It came from experiences we had, but God didn't give us a fearful spirit. What kind of spirit did God give Timothy and does God give us? He gives us a spirit of power, of love and of discipline. That is what the Holy Spirit is like in our lives. Power, love, discipline. Actually, Galatians 5 says more about this, but we're going to look at uh, them in this order. Love, power, and, and uh, lo- sorry, love, discipline, and power. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of love. Galatians 5 actually says that the, Holy, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That love is one of the proofs, one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. And that uh, John, uh, John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, that perfect love evicts or casts out fear. That there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out, kicks out, gets rid of fear. Fear and love don't really coexist very well together. Because when you demonstrate love or when you experience love, fear starts to run away. So see how, see how Paul is mixing. He's saying we, we're not supposed to be fearful. Remember, Our, the spirit we have is a spirit of love and love casts out fear. So Paul's saying to him, this spirit that God has given you is a loving spirit. A loving spirit that is the fruit or proof of the Holy Spirit. It casts out fear. And he also says in first, uh, for, it says in 1 John 4, that we love because God has first loved us. You can't love from an empty tank. You can't just flip a switch on and decide, I'm going to love people today. So, Tanya, here you go. This is for you. You can't just decide you're going to love people. You have to receive love first. You have to receive God's love for you in a real and experiential way. You can't just memorize John 3.16 or memorize some parts from 1 John about love or John 15 or 17. You can't just understand some concepts you have to feel it you have to know it in your heart that God loves you once you've encountered God's love personally it becomes so much easier to show it to other people because we cannot love uh, until God has loved us or we've known God's love we love because he first loved us so this spirit is a spirit of love it is also a spirit of discipline that word means self-control so when, uh, for instance, when your wife bakes cupcakes and you have one and it's really good, 
and you think, well, what's a cupcake? I already had one. I could probably have like seven. Self-control, right, says uh, I'll have the one cupcake. Self-control is not, self-control as the Bible talks about it, is not willpower. Willpower is not of God. Willpower is your own flesh's uh, attempt to uh, force something to happen, and your willpower is limited. I don't, I mean, many, many, many of you have tried to quit smoking, tried to quit drinking, tried to quit other things. You know your willpower doesn't get dieted. I don't know. I mean, I've never dieted, but you know, we've tried all of these things, and they don't, willpower doesn't get us there. Something else has to happen. Something, we either need a divine, miraculous intervention from God, or what we need is for God to give us clearer vision. So this is not about willpower. This is about clarity of vision. It's not about trying harder. It's about greater focus. Most people do not have a laziness issue. We have a focus issue. We have a vision issue. It's not that we don't have the strength. It's like, I don't know what I'm shooting for. I don't know why I'm shooting for it. And so what we really need is clear vision, focus on the vision. Once we have that, God provides the power. We find out the power was there all along. If only I knew what I was trying to accomplish. So, you know, if you have kids and you're trying to discipline them, one of the best ways to discipline a child is to ask questions that will clarify what do you want to accomplish. You know, I, I, I wish that suck it up and try harder worked. It doesn't work for kids and it doesn't work for adults. Try harder does not get results. A better thing to do is to ask questions to bring about clarity. So what do you hope to accomplish here? What is your end goal? Why? Why questions are really clarifying. Why do you want to do this? Does that, does that make sense? So this is helpful not just when raising kids, but it's helpful as we interact with one another or just in your own thought life. You know, why do I want to quit smoking or why do I want to lose weight or why do I want to get better at memorizing scripture or why do I want to learn what my spiritual gifts are? Why do I want to discover my calling? What, you know, ask those questions. Get some clarity and some focus and some vision and it's, then it's not about trying harder. It's about the overflow of the clarity in your life that you already have. So this spirit that God has given Timothy is a spirit of discipline or self-control that clarifies vision. The spirit that God has given Timothy is also a spirit of power. This is the ability to do supernatural works. The word power here is God's power. It's the word dunamis. It's the word we get dynamite from. This isn't a little bit of power like you wake up in the morning like, oh God, give me the power to get out of bed today. You know, like this is not that power, even though that can also come from God. This is supernatural power to do the work of God. It's dunamis or I want you to think in terms of dynamite. Dunamis does not come from the word dynamite. Dynamite comes from the word dunamis. Okay, the word dunamis existed first. This is God's power, not human wisdom, not our ability to manipulate people or intimidate people or our own physical strength. You know, sometimes what people do when they're not operating in God's power is they try to operate in their own power. They do that through intimidation. We raise our voice, we puff out our chest, we get bigger. You know, we get in people's faces or we manipulate through deception. That's ways to try to operate in power that is not dunamis power. 
dunamis power, this, the way this word is used in the New Testament, this is how Jesus and Paul and the other apostles built the ministry of the church was on this dunamis type power. When, when Jesus went around healing the sick and demonstrating works of power, it was dunamis power. When Paul went around casting out demons and doing works of power, it was dunamis power. When the woman reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed, you guys remember this story? She touches, and Jesus says, I felt dunamis come out from me, power. Talk about being clothed with power. Someone touches your shirt and they get healed. So that's the type of power that the Holy Spirit provides to us when the Holy Spirit lives in us. Paul often used power as his basis for distinguishing between true apostles and false apostles. This is kind of, if you know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and he says, well, you sacrifice to your God and I'll sacrifice to Yahweh and we'll see which God answers by fire, and that's how we'll know which one is God. Paul said to the church in Corinth, he said, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive speech, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He said in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. And when he was dealing with the false apostles in the church in Corinth, he said, when I arrive, we'll see not who speaks better, not who dresses better, we'll see who has more power, which I think is him saying, you bring a sick person, I'll bring a sick person, we'll see how this goes. I'll pray for someone, you pray for someone, and we'll see exactly what happens. I'll preach and you preach, we'll see which, where people are transformed and changed. It's a demonstration of power that Paul is uh, expecting there. Now, I wish the church would get back to this a little more. I mean, how do we settle debates in the church? Well, this Greek word, this Hebrew word, this theologian said this, this theologian said that. This is how Paul um, differentiated himself from false teachers and false apostles. He had two primary ways he did this. Number one, power encounter. Let's see who has more power. Or, and not more education, not more followers, not more experience. Who has more power was one way. The second way that he did it, let's see who's suffered more. You're getting rich preaching the gospel. I'm, I'm suffering for preaching the gospel, but this is what Paul would say. I've suffered. I've been uh, whipped 39, with 39 lashes. That happened to him five times. Shipwrecked three times. Had to fight wild animals. I mean, so Paul's argument was not, this is going really well for me. Paul's argument was, obviously I'm not in this for selfish motives. I've suffered greatly for it. So that's how Paul uh, adds credibility to his ministry. I'm suffering and still going. And there's power coming out of this. Things are changing. Miracles are happening. People's lives are getting transformed. So that's how Paul explains himself. He doesn't say, look how big the ministry is or look how much success I've had. He's, I've suffered and there's results. So Paul is making this point. Paul himself is making this point to Timothy 
the spirit you received, it's not a fearful spirit. It's not a scared spirit. And, and it's a good thing that Paul knew that because Paul got imprisoned. Paul's life was on the line. Paul had to stand before governors and, and people in power and authority, and he had to explain the gospel. Paul spent a knife, uh, at least one night floating on a ship, uh, part of a shipwreck in the middle of the ocean. You think Paul never had a reason to be afraid? But he knows that the Holy Spirit that God has given us is not a fearful spirit. It's a spirit that overflows with love and power and discipline. And so he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have the same spirit. And listen, guys, so do you. It's the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that Paul and Timothy had is, is in every Christian. I think sometimes we, we think that we need more of the Holy Spirit to come out of the sky like he did in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. Come out of the sky and come into us. That's already happened. We don't need Jesus to be crucified again. We don't need Pentecost to happen again. We need to appropriate what's already happened. So the Holy Spirit's already in you, so it's not a matter of getting him in, it's a matter of getting him out. Like Open your mouth. Use your hands. Let your feet take you where God is sending you. Do those things. You know what I mean? Like It's really about releasing the Holy Spirit that's already in you rather than trying to get more of him in you because he's already in you. So let him out. Does that make sense? Um, so it's, it's, it's a matter of when he prompts you, don't let fear shut it down. When he, when he moves you to do something, don't let fear keep you from doing that. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't shut the Holy Spirit down. Uh, follow the promptings and the leading of the Lord through that. Now, the second thing that Paul goes to after he says, Timothy, you're going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit. The second thing that Paul goes to is he actually starts to talk about his intimacy with God. Verse 12, Paul uh, says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And I love this phrase, for I know whom I have believed. He says, I know whom I have believed. Who is Paul believed in? Jesus. But he hasn't just believed in him. Now he knows him. You know, you can, there's a difference between believing in God and knowing God. When I was, I've always believed in God. When I was a kid, I never didn't believe in God. I've always believed in God. But it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started to know God. I started to take my faith, uh, well, I started to, I gave my life to the Lord and took my faith seriously. I started to discover through studying the Bible something called the attributes of God, like the characteristics of God, the fact that he is good and he's all-present and all-knowing and all-powerful. He never changes, those types of things. I started learning those things from the Bible so that I could answer the question, well, what is God like? If you can't answer the question, what is God like, you probably don't know him. And now I can answer that question not just by quoting some verses, but I could tell you some stories. Here's three verses where it says God is good. Now let me tell you a story from my life that demonstrates God's goodness. So I don't just believe in God, now I know God. Do you know who else believes in God and shudders? Satan. James says that. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. Now we believe in God and tremble. They shudder, we tremble in reverence when we think of God. So the de- you know, believing in God is like nothing, guys. That's a low bar, very minimal. That puts us in the ca- same category as the devil. 
So just saying, well, I believe in God, and this is what, probably what you and I encounter much when, we sh- when we're sharing the gospel with people. People say, I believe in God, I believe in God. Okay, tell me about him. Is he good? Is he all present? Does your description of God agree with the Bible's description of God? Uh, got any stories? Do you know God? That's what I want to hear people say, and that's how I know that they have a real relationship with Jesus. If instead of saying I believe in God, I say I know God. As soon as they say I know God, I'm like, yeah, you do. I can tell just by the word you used that you have an active, ongoing relationship with God. Belief is such a low bar that even Satan can measure up to it. But Satan does not know God. He does not have an intimate relationship with him. So Paul is saying, I know whom I've believed in. I know what he's like. I know how he's been good and how he's been faithful to me. We know God by having experiences with him. And a big part of the Christian life is having actual firsthand experiences with Jesus. It's not just memorize a couple Bible verses, understand a few concepts, and then be on your best behavior till you die. It's actually having firsthand experiences with God. Now, really quickly, I want to recommend a few books. If you're a reader, a few books that hit on this topic. Maybe I've referenced some of these in the past. First is the book, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Outside of the Bible, this is my favorite book. I read it when I was a high school student and did not understand anything. But I read it almost every year now. It's a short book. It's short. You can probably get it for 99 cents on Kindle or 10 bucks if you want the paperback. Or you, it's a pretty well-known book. We might even have some copies in the office I could just hand out. I love this book. Um, I want to read uh, really quickly a quote from the, book, from the Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. This is how he describes a Christian life. He says, the continuous an unembarrassed exchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed person is the throbbing heart of New Testament religion. He's saying the ongoing, unembarrassed exchange of love and thoughts between God and us, that's the heart of the New Testament religion. That we would go back and forth with God, unashamed by it, constant, continuous. That's the heart uh, of what the New Testament teaches. Now, some of you will know uh, Dorian James, a church member here, uh, Dorian. Uh, He read this book recently, and I knew that he enjoyed it, so I asked him, you know, give me a little review. Give me a five-star Amazon review that I can share. And this is what he said about this book. It is one of my favorites. Every page was kissed by the Holy Spirit himself. I've never heard Dorian talk about that, uh, like that, about anything. So, it's a great book, little book. Check it out. It does take a little work. Some of the words are big. It's available on e- uh, audiobook or even as a podcast for free. Next book I want to recommend is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Uh, Packer says this in Knowing God. He says, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. Those that know God have a great deal of energy for God. Do you wish you had more energy for God? Then get to know him better. The energy will come naturally. The answer to almost every spiritual issue we deal with is intimacy with God. How close can you get, right? Did you know that closeness to God is both 
spatial and relational. Here's what I mean by that. If, uh, if I brought up my best friend from kindergarten, Troy, I have not seen him since 1986. We're not very close. If I stood him right here and I said, this is Troy, we're not very close, yet we are close. Relationally, we're not very close. Spatially, we're close, right? We often think about being close to God as like he's in the room. He's right, Jesus is right next to you. You can have spatial closeness without relational closeness, right? Marriages do that. Families do that. You can have a, someone right next to you that you know nothing about. And so we want to grow in intimacy with God. That's like the solution to almost everything. Next book I want to tell you about is Desiring God by John Piper. In Desiring God, Piper says this, The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, and God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He's describing God as satisfying. I love that. I mean, John Piper uses words like delight, satisfaction, fulfilling to describe his relationship with God. I know that many people, when they think of God, they think boring or distant. You know, but that, that is not how everyone has felt about God. There are people who have been totally caught up and enraptured in their relationship with God. For, uh, fourth and final book I want to share with you is Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And in Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby says this, when Jesus said eternal life is knowing God, he did not mean that eternal life is knowing about God. He was talking about firsthand experiential knowledge. Now, I want to point out a theme, and maybe you've picked up on it. These books, here are the titles. Knowing God, Experiencing God, The Pursuit of God, and Desiring God. What are these all about? God and our response to God. We know him. We desire him. We experience him. We pursue him. That is why these books have been so impactful. These books will long outlast books like Purpose Driven Life or How to Live Your Best Life Now, which are really self-help books. These are books about God, his characteristics, his nature, and his attributes. And these books people will read for generations, and some of them are old enough that they've been read for generations. Now, I want to conclude with this challenge because you know some of you maybe you'll pick up a book and that's great. I hope you do. And if you do, tell me because that'll encourage me. But I don't think just reading a book is, is the answer to this sermon because you can read a book and by the end of it you've forgotten what you've read, uh, written or uh, read. Uh, I want you to think about the apostles. Think about Peter uh, what, what's Peter known for when Jesus was arrested? What did Peter do? Denied him, right? Den Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Pretty much all the disciples ran, right? Within two months, these disciples were now preaching the gospel, going to prison for it. Peter, in particular, denied knowing Jesus three times. When Jesus was arrested, Peter chopped off one of the soldier's ears, 
Jesus said to say, time out, picked up the ear, put it back on the guy's head, which is a story we should spend more time on probably. Peter denied knowing Jesus. And then what happens after Jesus is crucified, resurrected, ascended, and then in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit is given. All of a sudden now Peter's standing up, not hiding uh, from people because of Jesus. He's sharing the gospel with people. He's a totally different person. And then they arrest Peter because he's sharing the gospel. He's leading too many people to the Lord and he's healing the sick. So they arrest him. And they say, we'll let you go if you promise to stop. And Peter says, I can't stop speaking about what I've seen and heard. What happened in Peter's life to totally transform him? Number one, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the same thing that Paul said to Timothy, the the Holy Spirit. And what did Peter say is the reason he couldn't stop speaking about Jesus? I can't help speaking about what I've seen with my eyes and heard with my ears, my firsthand experiences. I mean, Peter went through exactly what Paul's telling Timothy to go through. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to have number first-hand encounters with God that are real that you rely on those things make fear go out the window because now you've seen where God's goodness has been present in your life where God's protection where God's provision has been in your life now I can't give you a three-step you know process to how to have an experience with God you know light a candle take communion you know, sing a song. I wish I had some sort of formula like that because if I did, I would use it, but I don't have that. There is no three-step, five-step, ten-step process I can give you, but here's what I can t- give you. There are a few attitudes that we can have that be- give us uh, more sensibility to the Holy Spirit, more perceptivity. Number one, repentance and brokenness always make you... Uh, make it easier for you to perceive the Holy Spirit. When you're broken and you realize your sin and your need and you're repentant, meaning as soon as God convicts you of something, you deal with it and you repent of it rather than trying to cover it up or hide it or excuse it. Repentance and brokenness, man, they really help you be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They put you in a position where you start to encounter God on a regular basis. And then in addition to repentance and brokenness, desperation and spiritual hunger. The under-acknowledged necessary parts of a vibrant relationship with God. You have to be hungry for God. You have to be desperate. And I know because I've experienced this and I bet you have too. There are days when you're just like, it's cool God, I'm full. You know, like, like at the end of Thanksgiving dinner and someone offers you one more roll and you're like, I'm, I'm satisfied, I'm good, I'm full. Sometimes we do that to God. And I know that that's not right because unlike Thanksgiving dinner, with God, the more you have of him, the hungrier you get. Not the less hungry, but the more hungry. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? And so we don't have a little bit of God get stuffed and then say, oh, no, I couldn't handle any more. We actually get eager for more. So the opposite of spiritual desperation is complacency. When we're, when we're pretty much happy with where we are, like, eh, I'd be cool if I could just coast like this for the rest of my life. You know, I, I feel, you know, I've, I've learned a few things about God. I feel, you know, 
kind of close to God and you know, I know we're good, I know I'll go to heaven and so I'm, I'm complacent with that. That is such a dangerous attitude. That is what sucks life, spiritual life out of people is complacency. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm happy. I, I have had moments of this in my life mostly based on my own arrogance and stupidity. There was a time when I was in high school, I read the Bible cover to cover, and when I was done, I, I thought to myself, well, I guess I've, figured, I've learned everything there is to learn. What an idiot. I can say that because it was me. What, a, what, a, what kind of fool thinks that reading the Bible one time over, I've discovered everything there is to discover about God? And then, and then I had a couple other kind of like life-changing moments with God, and I thought, well, hey, okay, I didn't know it all now, but now I know it all. Do you know how annoying it is for my wife to live with someone who thinks they know everything? It's really annoying. She would never say that. But, 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 but thank God I haven't dealt with any of that in a very long time because it just finally one day I just discovered I'll never know. There's always more. In which case, now my attitude is, God, how far can I go now? I mean, you're, you're like a limitless tunnel. How far can I get before I die? You know, can I get 100 yards in, 100 miles in? How far? I'm not satisfied to just put both feet in the tunnel and be like, I'm in the tunnel now. Let me see how far I can explore of God. Can I, what can I learn about his goodness? What can I learn about his holiness and his glory? How far are you going to let me go with this, God? Because... There's a never-ending uh, amount of information to explore about God. And so I think that's the attitude that drives like intimacy with God over the long haul is how much can, will you let me know? How far can we go with experiencing God here? And that's what I want to drive, I guess, and that's what I want to pray for us tonight, or this morning, this afternoon, whatever part of day it is. I want to pray that that attitude of how far can we go would be our attitude. Not, you know, I'm good enough, I, I, I've learned enough, I'm full, I'm complacent, but how far will he let us go with this? Jesus, how far will you let us go? We want to discover that. How far could, it, could we possibly go in having firsthand experiences with you? How far could we possibly go in being filled with the Holy Spirit and overflowing in power, love, and discipline? How far can we go about discovering, uh, in discovering your goodness, Jesus? I, I, I know that it's, you're inexhaustible. In our lifetimes and in heaven and eternity, we will not discover everything that there is to discover about you, God. Every experience that we have now, we can have a deeper experience of it again. Every time we encounter your mercy, we can have a deeper experience of your mercy in the future. Every time we experience your grace, we can have a deeper experience of your grace in the future. Lord, I pray that we would have firsthand encounters with you, that we would trust that the Holy Spirit that has been deposited and dropped into us is not a fearful spirit, but a loving spirit, a powerful spirit, and a disciplined spirit, Jesus. You've given us everything that we need to do everything you've called us to do, Lord. We reject fear in Jesus' name. We reject cowardice in Jesus' name. We reject even the shame that we feel in Jesus' name. Lord, I ask that those of us that are embarrassed to share the gospel would be free of that embarrassment. That the, the 
tension that mounts up that we're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, would you free us from that in Jesus' name? We don't want that anymore. I pray for the, those of us that are afraid to share or pray with our family members or housemates. Free us from that fear, Jesus. We want to fulfill everything you've given us to do. We want to do it free from fear. Take us deeper with you, Lord. Set us free and fill us with the Spirit. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.